That's what I'm doing. Okay, we're hoping it works. Okay. How's everybody doing? Yeah. Oh, nice. Awesome. Um, how was Labor Day? Yeah? Labor-less, labor-full? Anybody? Niner? Okay, awesome. Uh, so you have to, my voice is going to be uh, pretty bad, especially on the high notes. Um, so I got a little carried away this weekend at a wedding. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was talking over the speakers, and then Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer came on. I just went after it, you know. So here I am, a little bit worse for wear. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Sid. I'm the campus minister for RUF and a child of the 1980s, for that matter. Uh, bon Jovi. Um, uh, RUF is Reform University Fellowship at the Christian Ministry on Campus. Uh, welcome to it. You're in it right now. Um, RUF, let me tell you a little bit more about RUF. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, uh, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the students who left town this weekend and didn't look back until Monday. And for the students who stayed in their dorms and watched Netflix documentaries all weekend, who knew there were so many on North Korea? That's, that's amazing. Um, for the person who owns more than two computer screens, and for, the person, and for the person who still texts using a flip phone. Yes, REF is for everyone. Um, REF exists, finally, for those who would rather be lost in the woods than found in the church. And for those who love the church, even in spite of all its faults and blemishes. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, lots, that's no good. Um, is that everything okay over there? Okay. RF exists uh, for you and the bass guitar. And uh, we hope that you feel welcome. Welcome right now. I hope we get to know you. You get to know us. And by we, um, I mean you all and me. And if you're new, um, maybe you can find someone who, who thinks this introduction is funny and talk to them. Okay, here we are. Um, so I have a sign-up sheet. I don't know if it started. Oh, yes. There are actually two wonderful things on this. There's a sign-up sheet for our email. And then the service project, which was mentioned by Heather, is in your bulletin details top. Um, if you want to sign up, we just need to get a rough count of numbers. We're painting a house, and then we're having a block party. That's really how hard it is. Um, and it'll be in the neighborhood across university. Uh, I, the, the street and the name of the house is on that sign-up sheet. But we're meeting here to carpool at 8.30 in the morning. So if you really love Jesus, <laughs> you'll come at 8.30. Just joking. Okay. You could, not, you could love Jesus and not go to our service project. Okay. Um, what else? Uh, as usual, there's a lot to get involved in here. My re- recommendation is picking a Bible study and a lunch, or either. Um, we're really like the F of RUF fellowship. We really want to stress that. It's a good time to get involved in the community. And community can happen in large group, um, but it can also happen when it's, when it's a little bit smaller as well. Um, I think it probably happens better when it's smaller. So... Um, I apologize to the freshman who showed us my Bible study, which I did not tell you was not on. Um, again, I blame everything on this Tulsa wedding. Um, so here we are. Okay. 
So this semester, in large group, that is what we're doing here. We've been looking at the stories behind Jonah and Elijah, um, these two folks in the Bible, and we're discussing the book of Jonah, which is where Jonah's found shocker. And we're discussing uh, the story of Elijah and First Kings. Um, I'm calling the study this semester, Tracing the Heart of God, the story behind Jonah and Elijah. Uh, it's not the same sermon every week, that's just the topic that we're talking about, okay? So when you see that email, don't be confused. Um, why are we talking about these two guys in the Bible? Really short, briefly, we've talked about this a bunch. There's a lot of us in them. You know, these are, these are guys that have huge preaching moments, they have Old Testament miracles flying from their fingertips, but they're people like you and me, Okay. Just because they are surrounded by that, they can do that. There are still people who are struggling to believe in Jesus, um, who Jesus loves. Um, people who are scared and, and excited, and people who are used by God, and people who struggle to know who God is sometimes. Um, and Jonah and Elijah's story are actually really important because they're really about God. That's the fundamental thing that we're about is understanding what God is about. And this is why we're tracing the heart of God through these stories. Who does God care about and why does he care about them? Is a good question for us to ask. Okay, so tonight we're continuing our discussion of Jonah, book of Jonah. We're still in chapter one. Here we go. Um, and we won't get out of it tonight. Sorry. I really thought I could turn the corner and get 17. Chapter, uh, verse 17, I just couldn't do it. Um, so we're just going verses 11 through 16. But before we dive into those, I want to kind of give you some context. And you're going to have to prepare yourself for a Sidron authorized and now standard paraphrase version of verses 1 through 10. Okay? This is what happens, not word for word. Uh, God tells a Hebrew prophet named Jonah to go and tell the folks in Nineveh to change their ways. Okay? So that God and the Ninevites can be friends. So that the Assyrians and God can be friends. Better friends. But, you know, Jonah doesn't want to do this middle school duty. He doesn't want to pass on this love letter to the Assyrians because they skin people alive and hang them on spears. And that's kind of bad. So, um, so Jonah basically tells God, hey God, I'm on it. Don't worry about it. I got it taken care of. And then he runs the opposite direction as fast as he can. He takes the love letter and he throws it up into a million pieces in the air and just keeps on hiking all the way to Tarshish, Spain, via boat. Because he can't walk on water. He's not Jesus. Um, but Jonah, God tells Jonah, uh, starting about verse 4, not so fast, uh, as mercifully as possible, he says this. Um, and he uses a violent sea storm, a ship captain, uh, the casting of lots, to make Jonah come to himself to realize two things. He can't run from God. That's a dumb idea. And he needs to have an honest moment with himself. Not be, and, and basically, Jonah has this wonderful moment of confession where he talks about who he is and who God is, and this freaks his audience out. All the pagan soldiers just go crazy, not because they're afraid of intimacy and sensitivity, but because they are afraid of this big storm that's still there, um, even though Jonah's had this wonderful moment on the ship deck. So that leads us to verse 11. Um, again, the authorized standard paraphrase of the Bible. And that's where we're going to look. So if you turn to Jonah chapter 1 with me, verse 11, if you have a Bible, if you have a pamphlet bulletin thing, it's on the inside right. So take a look at that. And would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Jonah chapter 1, verses 11 through 16. 
And this is the English Standard Version translation, which is in your bulletin. Then they, that is the sailors, said to him, Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I notice because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Friends, it's easier for the heavens and the earth to pass away than for one letter one letter of the word of God to become void. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we do thank you for this opportunity that we get to gather together um, and study your scripture. Um, Father, I just do pray that this would be more than just getting going through the motions. I just do pray this would be more than uh, my uh, speaking out loud, that your word would carry and that it would change us, that we would hear things that are sometimes hard and, and wonderful, uh, difficult and easy, and I pray that that would totally uh, revolutionize the way that we perceive the world, the way that we live in the world, the way that we understand who you are and who we are. And Father, I do pray that Jesus would be more believable and more beautiful to all of us as a result of our time spent together, that, um, that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise, and Lord, that you'd bind our hearts like a fetter so that we wouldn't wander from you and your word. We ask these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks. Okay. So it was my senior year of college, and I was driving back for winter break. This was original. I went to school in North Carolina, and I lived in Ohio. So it was about a seven-hour drive. Substantial in New Mexico, that doesn't even get you out of the state from here, but it's okay. Um, just drove it, it took forever. Um, I just finished exams and I was tired. Now, everyone's tired after exams, but let, you, let me explain why I was so very tired. Um, you have to understand in college, and why, by college I mean even right now, that I'm something of a fourth quarter cu- quarterback, okay, when it comes to academics, okay? Um, I'm using the past tense here because it's easier spiritually and also to understand the story. So I was a fourth quarter quarterback. What do I mean by that? I mean that I waited to the very last minute to do my assignments, to study for my exams and write my papers. The very last minute. We're talking two-minute drill or less, okay? There I was taking, taking the exam or studying for the exam, and it was already the morning of the exam. That's how good I was at this. Um, And by good, I mean terrible. Uh, So basically, I really just couldn't motivate to study until the stress and the crisis of the last minute came over me and I was in a fetal position with panic. That's when I really said, game time. It's game time. Okay, That's when I really dug deep. Um, It was fight or flight to pass astronomy later that morning. It was fight or flight to pass all the exams I had. And this nearness to failure kicked me into this like fear and guilt-induced frenzy that, um, that made some vicious studying, uh, for me at least. <laughs> so anyway, I pulled my share of late-night cram sessions, P 
period, let alone that um, exam period. There were some moments of double fisting Mountain Dew and sleeping less than two hours and calling that a good night's sleep. Um, so, as you can imagine, getting on the car and driving to Ohio for seven hours after all of this was a little bit crazy. I was very, very tired and I wasn't very wakeful. Um, it was exhausting. And here's a warning don't try this at home. Okay, don't try this at home. So, if you're going to drive seven hours, don't do double fist Mountain Dew and take two hour naps. Um, but, so I was drowsy, but I felt the heady success of passing my exams. Like, I had done it. I completed the two-minute drill. We had won the game. The metaphorical Gatorade, post-game Gatorade, was dumped over my head. And I was feeling it. I was ready to go. I was excited about it. Um, and I was driving a route I had driven many times. Every single break, I drove the same route. I was a senior now. You'd think I'd get this under control. So I was like, no worries. Don't worry about this. I was a little distracted, a little tired, but I thought... I got this down. I'm under control. I just did five exams in like three days. So, um, anyway, and I, anyway, I was. I remember buying and then, well, renting from Barnes and Noble, buying and then returning a book tape that uh, that was just miserable. Trying to stay away desperately. Okay, uh, I think it was Snow Falling on Cedars, but which already you can tell me is, is, is bad. Um, it was one of those books that like really had excruciating detail, like very small details about like stumps in the autumn woods. And like and it wasn't well written, so it was even worse. So but like page upon page of talking about the stump. Um, and I was just silently resenting this book and this and this description of a stump in the woods. And all of a sudden I looked up and I saw a sign pass me by, whiz by me on the side of the road. And it was Interstate 64 and I thought it said East. Um, the opposite direction from where I really wanted to go, because I was going west, if you know, Carolina, Ohio. Anyway, okay. So, and I was pretty disturbed. I said, no way, that's just not right. I've done this a trillion times. So I looked, I, I kind of got focused. I turned, the, I turned the CD off. I said, here we go. I hunkered down. I narrowed my eyes, and I looked. The next sign, pumped the gas, trying to figure out what the next sign was. And lo and behold, I saw an I-64 East sign again. <laughs> And I said, this is not good. Um, I was going the wrong direction on I-64 at 70 miles per hour, and it turned out for an hour. Okay, so that's how long it took me to realize that. Um, and I pulled off the highway, and I had one of those moments with myself where I was like, self, come on. Get your head in the game. Pick it up. You just won. Now you're losing. Um, and I just kind of wondered, how had I gone the, the wrong direction for so long? That was kind of the question I was asking myself. So here's a question for you all. Um, what did I need to do to get home? What did I need to do to get home? In other words, was this honest moment of confession of my mistake enough to get me home again? No. I needed to turn around my car and drive the opposite direction in order to get back on I-64 West, okay, so that I could actually get home for Christmas. If I just stayed there in the car and said, you know, Sid, that was a bad mistake, I'm confessing that, that wouldn't have been enough. And I really want you to understand this, that turning around and going the other direction is a picture of what the Bible means by repentance. Okay? It, the Bible means by repentance turning around and going the other direction from sin. You see, it's not enough to confess we're wrong. We have to act on this honest intelligence. 
Okay? We have to turn around the car of our lives and drive the opposite direction from sin. A path, and sin, by the way, is that path that leads us away from God and farther from home. That is I-64 East in this case. Okay? And if you live, lived on that road, I'm sorry. Um, I doubt any of you would. Um, in our passage this morning, I want us to see that Jonah comes to a similar realization, or this morning, this evening, where am I? Tulsa, New Mexico. Uh, living on a prayer. Um, I'm halfway there. Uh, anyway. Uh, so, Jonah comes to a similar realization about the nature of the spiritual life. He sees after his confession in verse 9, which we talked about last week, he sees that the spiritual storm of God doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. He's confessed, but the storm still rages. And Jonah sees that he also needs to repent, that is, stop fleeing from God and stop fleeing from Nineveh. It's not enough to acknowledge that we're going in the wrong spiritual direction. We must turn around and go in the right spiritual direction towards God. So the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 11 through 16, prepare us to honestly examine our path, the way in which we're living, and to actively change our direction, if need be. And this passage prepares us for a God who calms the storm with his love in the midst of this directional turn. So Jonah 1, verses 11 through 16 says this, Stop running from God and start hurling yourself into the sea of his love. Stop running from God and start hurling yourself into the sea of his love because God has already hurled himself there and calmed the storm. Okay? Poetically, that's a really fancy way of saying this. Repent into the arms of Jesus Christ. Repent into the arms of Jesus Christ. He knows your sin, and by grace and through faith, he loves you enough to pay for your sin. Okay? Jesus knows your sin, and by grace and through faith, he loves you enough to pay for it. Okay. So, as you might expect, I have an outline for you uh, of, the cha- of the chapter, of, this, of these little verses. And you might go, Sid, I got your game down. You always give me two passages. You always sort of take the passage and say, actually, it's amazing this, this works out to be two sections. Uh, but tonight, watch out, three. Okay? Three. Whew. Whew. Living on a prayer today. Um, and verses 11 through 12, God shows us what repentance looks like. What repentance looks like. Verse 13 God shows us why we resist repentance. And in verses 14 through 16, God shows us how sacrifice is the only solution to our problem. Okay? Let me do that again. Verses 11 through 12, what repentance looks like. Verse 13, why we resist repentance. And verses 14 through 16, why sacrifice is the only solution to our problem. So let's start with verses 11 and 12 where the passage starts. What repentance looks like. Okay? I want to take a step back. Um, I know that the paraphrase was beautiful, but I really want to kind of think about where we've traveled so far in Jonah 1. Um, I don't want you to miss that this, pa- this chapter really beautifully illustrates the Christian life. Okay? So verses 1 through 3, we see what sin looks like. It looks like running away from God. More particularly, running away from what God commands us or calls us to do. Verses 4 through 10, particularly verse 9, We see what confession looks like. It's an honest moment about who we really are and who God really is. 
And then finally, look at verses 11 through 16. We, we get another word picture, another definition that's sort of an illustrated version of the Bible where we see a picture in a man's life, Jonah's life, of what this looks like. And that is of Jonah repenting. This is what repentance looks like. And that's what we're seeing in verse 11 through 16. It's a picture definition of repentance. Okay, so if you like illustrated books, you're in luck. Um, so what does repentance look like in Jonah's story and in our stories? So I said this before, I'll say it again. The storm is still going, okay? It's still going. Uh, Jonah is still in the boat. He's, he has admitted his sins, and he's confessed that he is running away from the God who controls the sea. And verse, tel- verse 11 tells us the storm grew more and more tempestuous. That's the English Standard Version translation. Stormy would be fine. Um, and over the gale force winds and the thunderclaps of, of, of uh, ship-shaking thunderclaps of creation here, the sailors asked Jonah a simple question, what in the world do we have to do to make this storm go away? What do we have to do, Jonah? It's your fault. What can we do? And Jonah has a solution. He says in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. Okay? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. This is Jonah's solution, and this is Jonah's repentance. Jonah knows that the storm will stop when he stops fleeing. When he must leave the ship immediately, and this is the only way that he can stop going in the wrong direction. And here's what's really interesting about this passage. Do you realize if he does nothing, if he just confesses his sins and keeps going on the SS Tarshish, he ends up to the west in Tarshish. He doesn't actually go back to Nineveh where God's called him to be. So doing nothing is not helping. He needs to turn around and go the other direction, and his only solution is to jump off the boat. We need to do the same thing when God's calling us to love other people. When we catch ourselves in a conversation where we're manipulating the conversation to get praise from people, which happens a ton, okay? I do it a lot. Instead of, instead of doing that, when we catch ourselves in a situation, instead of ministering to people by polishing their gifts and their dignity, we need to do more than pretend that that's not happening. We need to do more than have a moment where we take ourselves aside and say, stop, I see you're doing this, Sid, stop manipulating the person, um, and then just keep talking. Now, we need to turn from taking advantage of someone and move towards helping someone else. Okay? And like, it could be a friend, it could be a brother, it could be a classmate, and sometimes this looks like saying, hey, I'm using you right now, and confessing that on the spot. And more often it looks like stopping the train of conversation and reversing its direction. Okay? Starting to talk about them a little bit more and less about you. Um, that's what throwing yourself off the boat looks like on a very practical level. Okay? My, ca- commentator Matthew Henry puts it really well. He says this, if, if we must drown that which will otherwise drown ourselves. We must drown that which will otherwise drown ourselves. I don't think we realize this. I know that's a very trivial example for you, but I really want to show you how subtle sin is and how present it is in everything we do. Sin becomes an easy habit because repentance feels like dying. It becomes an easy habit because repentance feels like dying. Loving others well, when you, when you repent, it feels like casting yourself off of a moving boat and into a stormy sea. 
the word picture is beautiful to help us understand what that looks like. But look, we need to have a really hard and honest few moments here. Okay, we really do. Right here, right now. I'm sorry. It's just going to happen. Sorry. Okay. Here's what we need to see. We're like the sailors in verse 13. We're like the sailors in verse 13. We're thinking to ourselves, really, Sid? Again, what is the big deal? What's the big deal? Okay, I'm not perfect. Who is? Who doesn't like to talk about themselves? Who isn't a bad listener? We're all pretty good people just trying really hard. Sid, you're just so, you're so full of it. You're so full of gloom and doom. Well, you're right. I am pessimistic. We'll just put that on the table. Um, that's, sorry. Um, but really, that's not the heart of, of the complaint. For us and for the sailors, Jonah's solution feels a little bit drastic. Right? So the sailors kind of go, okay, Jonah, right, throw you into the sea. And they just take their oars and they just go for land as fast as possible, thinking a human life, maybe we can spare this. That's, that's really drastic, Jonah. I mean, I understand there's a problem, but really, honestly, do we really need to go that overboard? Pun intended, I guess. That wasn't intended. Awesome. Um, here we go. Uh, and we just think to ourselves, there's got to be another way than throwing ourselves off that boat and turning around. Okay? Um, instead of calling out sin, we row to make a potentially honest moment between two people less awkward, less uncomfortable, less vulnerable, and less costly. That's what it looks like to row to safety. When someone apologizes or we're hurt, we say things like, look, don't worry about calling me fat. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about not wanting to live with me this year. I'm fine. But really, it is a big deal, and you're not fine. Okay? I think about that movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yes. <laughs> Seen it? Okay. Of course, we're just going to go there. Um, why not? We've to Jovi, why not? Um, look, there's that scene where King Arthur, with his coconuts, rides up to a bridge. Um, <laughs> For those of you who haven't seen it, it's worth seeing. Um, too bad Labor Day has passed us by. Um, but anyways, with the coconuts, he kind of, you know, fake, stops the, the horse that he's not on. And he comes up to this guy, this giant black knight, okay, and who's got this giant sword, and the guy in this huge iron mask says, none shall pass, okay. He's like, I just, King Arthur says, I just need to get across the bridge. It's not a big deal. I'll just go. He says, none shall pass, and so it becomes a sort of altercation where King Arthur and the Black Knight go back and forth, okay? And finally it becomes a fight, because that's what the Black Knight's looking for. And all of a sudden the Black Knight and King Arthur go at it, and if you know the story, basically King Arthur, the Black Knight is not a very good fighter. And King Arthur hacks off every single one of his limbs at a time, and so he's just a bloody stump of a mess on, on his bridge. And he refuses to admit defeat. Um, and I, I guess I want to say this because when I say when we say this, we're saying we're a lot like the Black Knight in that scene about our relationships. Okay, um, we're saying when someone we get to know somebody, we engage with them, and inevitably we fight or they say something hard to us, um, and they verbally lop off an emotional limb, so to speak. Okay, all of a sudden we kind of go, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a scratch. Just a flesh wound. I'm good, and you hop around. We hop around with our sword, and we pretend like everything's fine. And nothing has been fine since the moment you lost your emotional leg. 
Okay? And frankly, uh, instead of worrying so much about guarding our bridge or worrying about so much about pretending like we're not hurt, maybe it would be really great if we could just honestly say, that's not fine, and I'm, that is a big deal, and let's just be honest. It's okay not to be okay. Okay, so that's the beginning of the of 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 healing. And let me put it this way: I'm going to say another. This is just watch out. Maybe it's because I was at a wedding all weekend, but it's going to be tough. Um, we our relationships. Everyone probably knows this, um, and I'm just going to admit it. Many of our relationships, including mine, they a lot of them just kind of suck. They just kind of stink. Okay, um, whether it's family or friends or roommates or classmates. Uh, we don't feel known. We don't know other people with any depth or any intentionality. And what I mean by suck is that it's not like we think that they're the most miserable things in the world, but we just know there's something better. There's, we know that those relationships could be better. And look, I'm not saying that all our relationships are bad. Don't hear me wrong, okay? I'm not saying you. we have good friends, we have good conversations, we have good deep levels of people. Um, at least sometimes. And I'm not saying it's all one person's fault. It's not all your fault or not all their fault. Um, I'm just saying a lot of our relationships, hear me, mine included, lack depth because they lack repentance and they lack honesty that things aren't fine. We're wounding and being wounded in our relationships all of the time if we're getting close to people. Okay, That's what's going on. That's who we are. And that's life. And so here's my hard question for you and for me. Again, it keeps getting harder. When's the last time you looked at a friend and you said, look, I've done wrong by blank. Whatever it is. It was messed up and I'll try to never do that again. When's the last time we had that kind of honesty and that kind of repentance? And then after that, we made every effort by the Holy Spirit to help to not to tell her secrets to steal his girl, to put her down in front of everyone, or to ignore him again. Listen, sins, often extremely subtle sins and very small sins, um, they're getting in the way of our relationships. They're getting in the way of us loving other people well and being loved well. And we just have to be honest about that. I'm sorry. Here we are. But, again, it's okay not to be okay. Because there's hope. And there's hope in two things. There's hope in repentance. And there's hope in a sacrifice. Okay, let's look at the hope in repentance. Let me give you a positive example of repentance heals relationships or begins that healing. I had a college roommate named Ryan. Okay? And Ryan and I became really good friends through repentance. Okay? Um... It happened by accident at first. You see, he had a very, very large collection of sneakers. I mean, ridiculous. Probably a hundred. Okay. Gosh knows why. I mean, every kind of basketball shoe, every kind of running shoe. He wasn't the most athletic man in the world. I think he just liked them for casual use. Um, anyway, it was, and he was the weird combination of having a ton of shoes and being a neat freak. Okay. He didn't want any of his shoes in his room ever. Ever. And so what that meant was row upon row upon row upon row of shoes in my hallway in front of my door to the point where I couldn't walk into my room, my bedroom, or out without tripping over shoes or doing some weird sort of hopscotch hop around the shoes. Okay? It was intense. 
And it happened from day one when I moved into to apartments with him. And so finally, I had enough, and I realized that Ryan's shoes were way too many, and that this was really selfish. And so I risked our relationship, and I told him that his shoes were a problem. And do you know what he did? At first, he was ticked, right? He's like, who are you to say this? Yada, yada, yada. But then there was this moment when I just kind of explained my position. He took a step back. He has the goofiest smile you've ever seen in your life. And he smiled that smile, and he threw his head back, and he just sort of laughed for like five minutes. (laughs) He said, you're right. My shoes are ridiculous. They are ridiculous. And you know what? I'm going to move them. Sadly, he just moved them to the next door down the hall. Another roommate who never confronted him. Anyway. But there was this moment, like, with Ryan, where when he... I realized when he threw his head back and he was laughing, and he, he just sort of said that, I was, he almost like had been waiting for me to say something. He had almost been waiting for me to have a real sense of honesty with him, and he was so glad we could finally just be honest about this. This small little thing that led to such bigger things. Because what we were able to do over the course of that semester, and he taught me how to do this. He taught me where to do this and how to do this. He taught me how to be honest. And he taught me how to repent. He would, we'd have these conversations, I remember them really well, that whole year. We'd be sitting on our common room futon, and Ryan would turn to me after a couple of, of days. He would say, look, Sid, you know you're really arrogant, and you need to get over yourself. Then he would say this thing with his goofy smile, I love you. <laughs> and you know what? Like, I really appreciate you. And I think there was something about that that, that he meant every word he said, both the criticism and the encouragement. And there's something so real and so honest about that that Ryan and I were able to relate on a level at which I didn't have with any of my other roommates. Because his stuff and my stuff were forefront, and we were able to deal with the wounds back and forth, and we weren't hopping around on one leg, pretending like it was just a flesh wound. Well, let's look again at Jonah's story. In verses 14 and 15... The sailors all of a sudden overcome their disbelief relatively quickly, and they sort of they decide in the drastic cure they're going to throw Jonah overboard. Why? What happens to make the, the sailors so radically change their mind about Jonah and how to fix the situation? Here's what they realize when they've rowed as fast and hard as they could. They've thrown all the cargo off the ship. They pray to their own gods. They've realized this: nothing else will work. Nothing else will work. Verse 13 says it well. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against stormy against them. Verse 13. They realize that there really are problems they can't row their way out of. There really are things that sacrifice is the only solution for and not just Jonah's sacrifice. Listen, let's not miss the point. When you're in trouble and and things don't work, human sacrifice is not what I'm looking for. Okay? Let's not miss that point. So let me be very clear. Um, Again, um, don't drive tired and don't commit human sacrifice. Um, If we're honest, we quickly realize that we're not good people and everything isn't fine and no amount of good works, positive thinking, and distractibility uh, and cool hobbies can fix that. It really can't. Because ultimately, if you commit yourself to doing good things for, for people, 
You'll, you're going to alternate between pride and despair over and over and over again, depending on the day. One day you're saint, one day you're sinner. One day you're sinner, one day you're saint. Depending on your mood, depending on the day, depending on the circumstances, depending on the people around you and how easy they are to please. The fact is sin is raging against us in our relationships. It's raging. And the reason why is because we're hurting each other and being hurt more than we're willing to admit. And it's not just a lack of discipline that's doing this. It's sin. It's sin. That's what sin looks like. That's what it feels like. And while it's a good start, sin needs more than just repentance. Repentance doesn't do the trick. Why? Because repentance is a promise to change. And that promise is meaningless. Unless something's there to power it. Unless something is fueling it to work. How are we ever going to change? What we need is a sacrifice. A sacrifice that's bigger than us. Bigger than Jonah. Bigger than anything either of us can give. We need a sacrifice as big as Jonah's sacrifice. Something that Jonah's sacrifice points to. Jesus. Jesus. We need Jesus, we need him to calm the storm caused by sin. And this is why that Romans reading is so important that we did earlier, Romans chapter 3. And that word that everyone sort of stumbled on, a little bit harder than tempestuous, okay? It's called propitiation, okay? And that word means this, okay? Jesus calms the storm between you and God. Jesus calms the storm between you and yourself. Jesus calms the storm between you and other people. Jesus calms the storm between you and the storm's elements. That is creation or nature itself. That's what propitiation means. It means that Jesus is the way that hurts are healed and wrongs are righted. It means that Jesus has hurt and wronged no one, but he died on a cross as a cosmic perfect offering so that we can have... Our hurts healed and our wrongs paid for. His sacrifice gives us the ability for our repentance to be forgiven. It's silly for me to own my wrongs and then to try to change if my wrongs aren't righted by someone. Jesus endures the storm caused by sin because no one else can. He's our only hope. And we can only have peace like no one else because of Jesus. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, the beauty of this passage in verses 14 through 16 promises it. We have life, that is spiritual and physical life, by Jesus' death. Just look at the sailors in verses 14 through 16. They get both. And you see that Jonah's act of repentance leads to the sailor's life, right? They, their belief in the Lord God is from Jonah's act of repentance. But it's not because Jonah is passionate and fired up. Okay? It's not like Jonah is such a huge example of a fiery torch that everyone can't help but watch him burn. Okay? That's not what this passage is saying. Now, that's a really beautiful, authentic, and real thing that does change people and it's attractive. Okay? But the, the, the sailors are really changed, they're really converted because God calms the sea. That's why. He calms the sea. He calms the sin. And in this act, they glimpse the character of God. They glimpse that he's powerful enough to order chaos. He's just enough not to ignore hurt. 
And he's compassionate enough to save our lives by dying for us if we believe in him. This is what they saw and this is what we saw. We see right now in this passage, thinking about Jonah's situation, it's really happened. We see a sacrificial love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a community of sacrificial love coming together and displaying itself on a sea somewhere into the Mediterranean. We can't help but be moved to turn around and go the other direction. Back to the hard things that God is calling us to because we understand with God those things are no longer as hard. Would you pray with me? Father, um, it's hot. Um, We're tired. But I pray, Father, that we wouldn't let this word escape us, that you wouldn't let this word escape us even better. I pray that you would catch it before our sight, that we would rise and we would go down with it, that, Lord, it would be like a vision before our eyes, we would walk down the road with it. I pray, Father, that this word that your son Jesus Christ died for people like us who have problems would change the way that we react to our problems. We would no longer ignore them. We would no longer endure them. We would bring them to you when we jump into the stormy sea. I pray, Father, that um, in all of this hard truth, that this would be a safe, soft place for us to land. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.